Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Looking forward to this one. I invited Ed Cook onto the show. For those of you that have read the book Moonwalking with Einstein, it was Ed who taught the author Joshua Furr how to become a world-beating memory champion and set a new record of counting cards, I think it was, that exact event. That He did that in under a year. And I wanted to bring Ed on to talk about memory and how we can all get to memorizing our 12 words or 24 words on our hardware wallets, which he does. It's amazing to watch. Uh, sorry, I had the privilege of, of watching him do this. It was very, very simple. And you will have the privilege of listening to it. But we get down some, some great rabbit holes and it turns out Ed's a Bitcoiner and has been for a long time. And he has some cool stories about that in the Silicon Valley world, which stick around for because it's uh, it's really good fun. Hope you enjoy it. Big thanks to Ed for coming on the show. Didn't expect this one to turn out the way it did and really appreciate him giving up his time. Before we get into it, usual shill for coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Go start stacking some sats. Thanks for the support, Obi. Really appreciate it. And a big shout out for the boys at um, 21ism, of course. Go check them out and Sabadas for the music in the background. And of course, Adam for putting this show together. Really appreciate it. You make it sound great. Let's get into this one, guys. Hey, guys, welcome to this week's edition of the Once Bitten podcast. And joining me today is Ed Cook, something a little different. Ed is a memory champion, and uh, I'm really looking forward to getting involved with uh, the specifics around how we can get better at learning our private keys and our 12 or 24 words, which hopefully Ed is going to uh, help us with. Ed, thanks so much for coming on the show and joining us today. Hey, thank you, Daniel, very much for having me on the show. Excited to be here. So Lauren is here to ask uh, the first question. Fantastic. <laughs> fittingly, yes. fittingly, do you remember your first question? Uh, no. <laughs> You're talking to a memory champion. And you've forgotten your first question. <laughs> put, your, put your earphone in. I thought you were going to ask him, how, how do you remember so many things? Oh, okay. Okay. Um, yeah, how do you remember all that stuff? Um, so the funny thing about human memory is that um, we're all actually very good at remembering stuff we're interested in. And so, you know, if you're really interested in um, a singer or you're really interested in a sport or whatever, you'll tend to remember lots of things about it. And, you know, I've met loads of 10-year-olds in England who are obsessed about football, who can name every player on every team, every sports ground. They can remember what happened in all the matches. And there's about as much information in that as in a medical degree. And you're like, well, why, how have they learned all this stuff? And it's, it's because they're fascinated by it and interested. And so memory techniques, the way they work is that they, they're like maneuvers or techniques for making stuff more interesting and making it kind of fit your brain better. So, you know, if you want to learn a foreign word, there are, there are techniques for kind of making the word super interesting so that it really clicks in your brain. If you want to learn a math formula and you find math formulas boring, there are tricks for making that math formula more boring. And that's basically how memory techniques work. They're ways of amplifying our attention, our level of interest in things, so you just can't forget. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Samuel doesn't really forget anything about football. No. And do you remember I was helping you remember some of your times tables the other day? Oh, my and I had God. You, I had you close your eyes <laughs> and imagine the, the times table written on your pillow or on your desk? Yes. That was a trick that I learned from reading moonwalking with Einstein, where Ed, this is Ed's tricks, they, and we're going to talk about that later. But uh, do you remember any of those? Um, four times seven is 28. Where is that yeah. in, your, in your bedroom? That's on my desk. 
Yes, it works, Ed. Yeah. No, it's on my pillow. It's on my pillow. That one's on your pillow. Seven times seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, Close your eyes. You is can... that 63 or is that the other one? That's the other one. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is it like... Uh... I've got a question for you, Lauren. What's, um, Lauren, what's eight eight? Sixteen? What? The way you remember this one is you think of someone... You think of a really fat man, and you think you say he ate and he ate till he was sick on the floor. Eight eights are sixty-four. So say that after me. Um. Ate and he ate until he was sick on the floor. And then he ate and he ate, which is sixty-four. <laughs> you got there. <laughs> Very good. Well done. Excellent. Well, do you want to say uh, goodbye to? Bye. Ed? Let's tell it off. Not good night. No, good afternoon. Okay. Good afternoon and bye. Thanks, Ed. So, wh- where did this all start? This kind of uh, fascination with memory. And for the, for the listeners that don't know, you've already written you've written your own book as well, haven't you? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have a, a book published by Penguin called uh, "Remember, Remember, Learn the Stuff You Thought You Never Could," which is a kind of collection of amusing short stories for learning things like the American presidents and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, check it out and but yeah i got into memory um i guess almost when i was at school i was very interested in um and it almost came back to childhood i was always interested in mental experience um like i always found um um it fun to kind of play around with with conscious experience and to kind of um pay attention to the peculiarities of like how the mind works. One of my earliest childhood memories actually is um, my dad explained to me when I was like five, that light bounces off the tree and enters my eye. And I remember this blowing my mind because I really felt as if my eye reached out to the tree and touched the tree. And it just felt absurd that the light, my, my eye wasn't actually going out into the world and touching the world, which is like actually a really interesting memory because it kind of relates to the actual fundamental experience of vision which is that it doesn't feel like it works it actually feels like a probing that your eyes go to touch the world sort of thing and it's only our scientific ideas which sort of um about the underlying uh, mechanisms that actually kind of um make us think in terms of the world being uh distant anyway um yeah so i was super interested in um all these things through my teenage years and then uh, when i was 18 i i was ill with a disease called post-viral arthritis which is basically an immune reaction which attacks your joints. Unfortunately, that passed, by the way, but but it meant that I ended up in hospital for three months with nothing to do. And I was in an arthritis ward with these sort of octogenarians who would sort of have the same conversations every day. And I um, thought, well, I've, you know, I've got a lot of free time on my hands. I may as well learn to remember stuff. So I got a couple of books, one of which was by uh, Dominic O'Brien, the then seven times world memory champion who I would later uh, become friends with at memory tournaments. But he um, he had this great book called Learn to Remember, and it just took you through the basic techniques of memory. And being able to practice that quite quickly led me to, after you know a few months, being able to do some of the things which, you know, remain the basis of my memory skill today. So being able to remember a pack of cards in a minute or a thousand-digit number or any of these things. Um, and so that's how I got into it. And, you know, then I went, I, I studied after that at Oxford, I studied uh, philosophy and psychology. And um, it was kind of my party trick at university. It was like memorizing decks of cards, you know, you know, you win bottles of champagne off barman and this kind of thing. And um, and anyway, I, I, in my last year, I was living with these, um, I was living in this quite fun house with these, uh, these four girls. And they were like, Hey, can you just stop talking about how good you are at memory and actually prove it? So I went off to the World Memory Championships that year, which were in Bahrain, and um, that introduced me to the kind of the world community of, uh, of memory people. And, um, yeah, I came 10th in the World Memory Championships that year, and, um, and then I just carried on going to these tournaments and gradually began to win a few medals and, um, and got really kind of absorbed into this really hilarious community of people who are... Um, who are who take the fine-grained elements of mental advancement to just an insane degree, you know, like um, 
there's this very free and open exchange of technique. People practice ferociously for hours a day. And, you know, over the course, you know, since what's super interesting about it is that the world record for learning a pack of cards in 1990, I think it was two and a half minutes. Um, <laughs> and now it's like 20 seconds. And the reason for that is because of the iterative open sharing of technique and the framework of an objective championships where like, rather than memory champions being this thing of rumor and like, Oh yeah, there's this guy who could read a book once and recall every detail on every last page. It's just like an objective test and there's nothing like an objective test to get like, um, get precision to understanding. That's crazy. So you can, can you still, you can still do all this stuff. Remember a thousand digit number and a pack of cards in under a minute. Like that's not going away. Yeah. <laughs> that's not going away. And I, you know, it's interesting. I can sort of, it, the, the technique is pretty deep bait now. So, you know, I can, um, I can fall completely out of practice, you know, like not, um, not, um, not remember a sequence of numbers for six months and then, yeah. And then sit down and remember a thousand digit number in an hour because the techniques are pretty simple. They're pretty deep wired now into the old brain. And, um, and, um, you know, and I can teach other people to do it as well, which is perhaps the most, uh, interesting and important thing. And that was the basis of the book for moonwalking with Einstein written by uh, Joshua Fur, where I was reading that book and what well, laughing out loud as I was reading it, uh, many of your stories that, that he was explaining in the book and some of your techniques and, uh, eccentric, uh, eccentric kind of, um, escapades that, uh, that you guys were going on. And you definitely seem to have drawn Joshua or took him right under your wing and pulled him into the rabbit hole of memory championships and coached him in a year to become the world champion of America. That's like, sorry, spoiler alert guys, if you haven't read the book, but that it just blew me away that you could do that. Yeah. I mean, um, and it was really fun. Like, uh, Josh is, um, yeah, a very curious guy and really got deep into the world of memory. And, um, yeah, he, um, and you know, and what's cool about these techniques is that, that they don't take a million hours to learn. Um, they take advantage of all your native mental abilities, your ability to imagine things, your ability to, um, direct your attention, your ability to, um, yeah, to be systematic. Um, and, and yeah. And so, so they take away, you know, and the, the interesting thing about memory techniques is they basically, you know, one way of, of explaining how they work is that they take all the things your brain is amazing at and direct them in a very focused fashion against the task of memorizing. And, and what are our brains amazing at? Well, they're amazing at like, at like spontaneously imagining things. They're, you know, they're amazing at visualization. They're amazing at, um, verbal association. They're amazing at, um, remembering and navigating spaces. Um, and so you exploit all of these abilities to, to learn massive amounts of information. So how does that tie in with what you were studying earlier? Because I, I am, um, am I right in thinking there is a philosophical, philosophical side to this and psych, obviously psychological is it, how do you explain that to people? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I sometimes, I mean, I'm, I'm, I suppose what's, um, yeah, what's so interesting about these techniques is that, that in a way they are, you can call them memory techniques, you can call them imagination techniques, you can call them attention techniques, you can even call them techniques of emotion. How do you feel an emotion when you experience something? So that, because, you know, we remember what we um, experience emotion around. And so from a kind of philosophical perspective, um, you know, I don't really think of memory techniques as about memory specifically. I, th I think of them about as about consciousness. They're about ways of um, architecting, controlling your consciousness. And what's so interesting is that you know, you know, in classical psychology, all the different mental attributes are kind of separated out. You have like, oh, this is the perception channel, and this is the memory channel, and this is the language channel. But but actually, the more you dig into the deep details of how the mind could function logically, but also how it is actually um, implemented, so to speak, in the mind, in the brain, you know, these things intermix, like memory is a part of every aspect of cognition. Um, um, 
you know, all of these new um, artificial intelligence models for language productions, things like GPT-3 and, uh, and so on, these are all forms of artificial memory. They're all, um, they're all, you know, basically what these systems do is that they sediment into their neural connections immense amounts of te text. Um, and because memory is creative and because memory is dynamic, depending on the cue, how, how you prompt it, um, you can actually create a machine which sounds like it's a person talking very intelligently on a, on a topic um, just from memory. And that kind of gives insight into the extent to which our linguistic abilities, our imagination, our thought, these are all in their way forms of memory. But by the way, the same thing can be said in the other direction, which is that thought and language and so on are sedimented with memory and um, and can't be understood without the connection there. So, yeah, definitely the, the kind of, you know, the... Um, the ordinary, the ordinary ways we talk about our mental attributes, you know, memory being one of them, is uh, are not fit for purpose when you go really deep into the details. And so, so you know, you can think of, um, um, well, basically, philosophy of mind and memory techniques are very good co-partners in a journey of exploration about like what we are and what the mind is and how consciousness works. That's a deep rabbit hole, and it's. Uh... <laughs> It's definitely one that's opening up for for a lot of Bitcoiners, but we will we will get down that that specific rabbit hole later on. I think when we start talking about that, but like what I got from the book were, were so many things, but one of them was you you just well, what would you say to someone that says I don't have a good memory? Um, I basically say you're confused. Um, no, actually, what I say is like, why don't you think you have a good memory? And they're like. Well, I always forget my keys. And I'm like, yeah, so do I. Um, and they're like, oh, but like, I have trouble remembering people's names. And I'm like, yeah, that, 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 that may well be the case. Um, and then you kind of look at any specific example. And, you know, normally with anybody you can find the most memorable example of this, actually, I, I, some kid came out, they came out to me after a talk at a school and they were like, yeah, I, I, I got a terrible memory. Um, you know, how can you help me? And I'm like, well, you must be good at remembering something. And he's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know, man. I was like, are you interested in football? He's like, no. And then he was like, well, oh, I, I have memorized the Quran. <laughs> and it is this Muslim kid. And, and I was like, you got a good memory, dude. Um, <laughs> you just, you know, you uh, just need to recognize, you know, and everyone's like this. Everyone has areas where they're really good at remembering things because of their interest. Like, like we began on this podcast, like because they're paying attention and, the vast majority of what people take to be problems of memory are actually problems of perception. It's like you're not actually letting the information into your mind in a way that supports um, recall later down the line. And so, you know, with names and faces, you kind of you're at a drinks party or whatever party, and you get introduced to four people at once, and the names don't go into your head at all. But like, if at that point in time you take the time to be like, okay, so you're Lucy. Hi, Lucy. Nice to meet you, Lucy. And they have a chat with Lucy, and you know, you 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 prompt yourself and you recall the rest of it. It just means you're actually processing the name. You're actually forming the memory in the first place. And then we can talk about whether you've got a good memory uh, once that's happened. But before that's happened, the problem's not your memory. The problem is the fact that you're you're not actually just taking the information in in the first place. How much of our brains are we actually? using or not using um, i'd say 100 percent. you know i think um well, you know not using 100 percent. <laughs> i mean i mean if, you, if you're talking in terms of like the neurons it's 100 percent. like um um you know the brain is you know has nerve cells firing um you know between once every few every any given cell is firing between once every few seconds and once every few milliseconds and you know cognition emerges out of the holistic ensemble of all of your brain. So like, you know, we're using at some level all of our brains most of the time. There are, um, there are, you know, the, the question is normally, I guess, really meant from a kind of potential point of view, how much of the potential of our brains are we using? And I actually probably think that we're probably using 100% of the potential of our brains, but normally on a load of random crap. Um, and so, 
you know, to, to actually talk about the potential, you need to know what the goals are. And if your goal is to sort of um, have a vast, you know, to have hundreds of thousands of micro memories of things you've glimpsed on Instagram, that's one like way of deploying your consciousness. And normally when we think of people being um, making the most of their brains, it, it's normally because an enormous amount of time and focus has gone into wheeling their brain through particular topics or productive activities. So, you know, if you spend three hours one evening deeply understanding, say, Bitcoin, that can be a change in your brain, which then affects the rest of your life because you have a relationship to this fundamental revolutionary technology, which you wouldn't otherwise have. And so, you know, learning things is typically a good good use of brain power. But, but again, like we're always learning things. The question is, what are you learning? And are you learning um, stuff of consequence or are you learning stuff of little consequence? And, you know, we, we happen, unfortunately, to exist in a kind of an attention economy where, um, you know, and this is, by the way, very natural, where um, um, a vast amount of our attention can be sucked into quite abusive stuff for the brain like you know i mean instagram is an easy target but like um but also like worrying about the future or you know whatever um, um there are all sorts of cycles of and patterns of thought which you would say are not productive anyway i'm i'm, I'm flying far from the original question but you know the basic thing is is like everyone's mental abilities are there everyone's brain is 100 percent there and available to be used and it and and the question of like making use of one's potential relates to one's goals and actually kind of relates more to like being deliberate about what the things you're learning are rather than that stuff is getting learned yeah for sure and what's the your thoughts on <clears throat> excuse me obviously you have a, a a passion for a love of learning and what do you see I've seen on both sides, my kids in a school setting and out of a school setting. And when they're out of a school setting, the learning just seems to like take over. But when they're in a school setting, it's just they get home, they're drained, they're tired. They've got to get more books out and just carry on doing the same kind of thing over and over monotonous work, which they're not at all interested in. What do you see that yeah. – do, do you have anything to – Yeah, so, so- – so I think that, um, I mean, there's a general point, which is that, uh, yeah, I'd like to make two points here. One of which is around like the conditions under which we learn best. And then the second one is around the functions of a school. And um, in terms of the conditions under which we learn best, we always learn best with high agency because, um, because you know, we are creatures of action. And when you can act on things, when you have agency, when you can direct your attention to where almost you're getting the most gain, where you're getting the most uh, purchase or degree of learning, then um, that's cool. Um, and so, so that's one thing, which is that that you know, and obviously, like people learn best when they're having fun, when they're interested in what they're doing, when it's. Um, when it's presented meaningfully. And I've read lots of books, by the way, from the 19th century, which <coughs> which have understood this completely, um, you know, where it's like learn meaningfully, engage the imagination, relate materials to things people already know because every memory is a connection to other memories. And so, you know, that, that's the important role of, of narrative and of metaphor and of all these things in learning is that, um, is that um, they... You know, metaphors, narratives, um, crazy diagrams. These are, these are all ways of like taking stuff you don't know, what you're supposed to be learning, and relating it to what you care about, what you're interested in, and what you can relate to, and therefore getting purchased on things. And so that's uh, that's pretty critical. Um, and school's problematic. You know, you get large class sizes, you get boring, um, you know, teaching to the test. You get um, you get um, teachers who know aren't who are tired aren't necessarily impassioned by their subjects you get uh, people with many different abilities in a the class there's all sorts of problems there but you know you know i had a you know i was very fortunate i had a great great school education um 
where I was at a school in um, in Oxford growing up, which is a sort of day school. It was a private school called the Dragon, and um, it was quite a wild, unruly place. It was like quite big for a school, a junior school. It was like had like six hundred people in it, and it was um, it was kind of mayhem. But with all these, um, but all your classmates were the kind of these uh, children of eccentric Oxford dons and doctors and the rest of it. So there was a kind of there was a the, the broader context of the school was quite incultured, I guess. The teachers were like quite, um, you know, quite eccentric characters who were like, they were not there to get people to pass exams. They were like, they wanted to teach poetry or like physics or whatever. Anyway, that was a cool experience and schools can be great like that. And that obviously kind of comes from a place of privilege, really, like um, both in terms of the, the social context of Oxford and of being at a private school and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, schools can be awesome. But I suppose the other thing about the point I wanted to make is that schools are, um, you know, schools are childcare. Schools are socialization. Schools are sport. Schools are um, friends. You know, there's a lot more going on. You know, and like schools don't get the credit for this, right? You know, and I think during the lockdown, it's quite funny. I got all these colleagues at Memorize who having to homeschool their children, they're like, I cannot do my day job. This is unendurable. Uh, and, um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, so, um, uh, yeah, schools don't get the code for that, but, but I, I got some thoughts. I, I'd love to actually create a school one day. I'm, I, I'm intending on doing so. Um, there's a guy called uh, Chris Edwards, who's a, a, a headmaster at Brighton Hill Community College, who I've been friends with for 10 years uh, after I went to give talks in his school way back. And um, he's an example of like a, a headmaster who's got a bit of vision, got a lot of practical nous, um, is very, very passionate about the outcomes, is sort of um, is cogent and pragmatic in terms of the actual difficulties and challenges you face with, you know, the communities you're part of with the, the very, very, you know, the very different attitudes, intentions and purposes of the parents in school, whether there are parents, whether the native languages of the people who come in, all sorts of challenges which you actually face in a real world school. But I do believe that it's possible to kind of create a, um, you know, maybe a primarily online school that is just completely wicked and awesome. Um, and I kind of, I hope to do that, uh, in a, in, a, in a few years time um, well excellent i'd love to see that i'll point you towards galileoxp.com which uh is definitely worth you you taking a look at and learning about because uh they're doing a uh, great cool. job and that's where my kids are part of that and uh, i was part of the formation of that school about a year ago so uh i'll happily oh, happily wow. talk to you about it's, that it's called galileo xp yeah galileo xp you said something there when you were talking about how we learn best and you were referencing books that you read in the 19th century and how you, you brought up crazy diagrams and that jumped out to me because crazy diagrams to me now means memes and we are in this world of memes. Um, memes seem to work best with people for capturing imagination, especially whether you're using Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever it is to get your message across. So that was um, it was very interesting, and I just wanted uh, your take on that. If if you had anything to say about the meme wars that uh, we're currently in, yeah. So I love TikTok um, as an example. So and I try kind of like TikTok is almost like it's an absolutely ingenious piece of product design whose features are roughly this. Um, anybody can create. Um, pieces of content. The content are already in this extremely memorable format. They're short, they have music to them, they're emotional, and they're creative. So these are all marks of memory. And so anyone can create one of these pieces of content. And then um, the whole thing is a machine for discovering which one of those pieces of content is the most attention-grabbing, vibrant, interesting, memorable. And you can measure that by how many times people rewatch, how many times they share, how much, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a work of genius as a product. Um, and, um, it, um, it, um, is, um, yeah, it's a work of genius as a product and it, um, um, it basically forces to the top 
the most memorable, interesting things, and then makes that your feed. And so people who go to TikTok spend an hour a day because it's just like, this is highly memorable and interesting. This is highly memorable and interesting. And I've done tests on myself because it's, it's one of these infinite scroll feeds things. Um, and so you, you don't notice how many pieces of content you looked at. You just go, rah, 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 next, 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 next. Um, and I've gone back and I've, because uh, it remains in temporal order, even if you go in reverse direction. And, you know, in the course of 15 minutes on a bus, I've gone through like 200 videos, 100 or 200 videos, half an hour for 200. And, um, and then, I, and then I, I look at the first frame and I don't let it play. And I'm like, what happened in this video? And I remember everything which happened in the video. Right. And so it's for 30 minutes, there's 200 videos. I've seen these videos and I know what's going to happen next after having seen them once. And it's like, okay, well that is sensationally memorable. Um, um, so what's going on here? Well, it's, it's ticking all the boxes of memory. It's like, it's vivid, it's emotional, it's short, um, it's socially engaging. Um, and it's cool. So, you know, um, but of course it's completely pointless. Um, and except if entertainment is your goal. And so, yeah, so the, and that's kind of, I guess what entertainment is, but, but it's sort of like, it shows you why, you know, TikTok half an hour on TikTok is basically what it's like inside my mind when I'm memorizing a thousand digit numbers number. How um, do you do that? Well, a yeah, thousand so, digit I mean, numbers. A thousand just, digit I mean, numbers. I mean, maybe we could jump to like, <laughs> that, we could actually take an example and like, um, I don't know if you have like a sample 24 word Bitcoin. Good idea. What a key star well, thing. Uh, I could, um, well, I'll just go and pick 24 words out of your, your Wikipedia page, which is right up here, and um, I'll just write down twenty-four words. Yeah, or should we do twelve? Okay, should good. we? Should we do twelve with the? And uh, well, you can do twelve. That's fine. Yeah. And so, so while we're doing it, you know, basically, you're taking whatever you're learning and you're transforming it in your imagination into a form where it's highly memorable. And so uh, you're saying. You know, and if it's numbers, by the way, you have like a special vocabulary. So you say, okay, every two-digit number is going to be a person. Okay, 79 is my sister Daisy. 81 is Princess Diana. 99 is the cricketer Don Bremen. And like these won't make any sense to anyone else who's listening, but they're like, they're my first associations with these two-digit numbers. Number 01 is Martina Hingis, who was the world number one tennis player when I was forming this image system. You know, like, <laughs> it's just random associations, but they're always, every two-digit number is always the same person in my mind. So when I see a sequence of numbers, I'm just like, okay, well, seven nine. So let's say it's seven nine zero one four nine three six. I'm like seven nine Daisy, my sister. Okay, she's talking to zero one Martina Hingis. So I imagine those two together. Four nine is my friend Melissa. She's very beautiful. She's very vibrant. She's very fun, uh, and she is like three six, behaving like Colin Fraser, who's one of my teachers at school, and. Um, and and suddenly this boring number has become this entertaining sequence of people interacting. And then we do a second thing, which is we begin arranging them around spaces. Humans have awesome memories for spaces. Um, and by taking these images and arranging them in your imagination around a space, you kind of remember, you're like, okay, Princess Diana's in the kitchen. The Pope is on my sitting room table. Um, Roger Federer is on the sofa. Uh, he's talking to Martina Hingis. Okay, two Swiss tennis players. That makes sense. In the doorway, we've got Darth Vader, etc. And you kind of go through this and you know try it out, but it just works ridiculously well. And you know, whenever you're remembering anything, the trick is to transform it into these kinds of images because they are um, um, they are um, um, yeah, they are just inherently um, much more mem memorable. So uh, who is number 69? I'm sure everyone would love to know. Um, I can't say <laughs> on radio who 69 is. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a family show, Ed. So, <laughs> it's a family show. Okay, um, well then. But let's just say it's a, a, a memorable acquaintance. So the one number we started with was 88. I'm assuming there's, there's what's in your mind for 88? Well, funny enough, it's not two fat ladies, which would be a, na a natural one because that's a poker terminology for 88. Um, 88, for some reason, is it's actually, I, I mean, uh, she would be astonished to hear this because I haven't actually spoken her to her for about 20 years. <laughs> but it's a friend from school called Ruth. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know, whatever random reason, I just had an association between her and 88. Maybe she was born in 1988 or something. 
And um, anyway, and so yeah, so it's just my private repertoire of images. It's quite fun building this for one. How many? And, how um, many numbers do you, these images? Be- do are these just double digit numbers that you remember, or do you remember triple digit? Yeah, it's double digit. I mean, at one point I actually did a triple digit system so that I could chunk the numbers and like you know rather than forming one image for two people, you know, one, one image per two-digit number, I could form one image for three-digit number, and that would, like, therefore give me 50% more speed. But that's a very advanced thing to do, and the only reason you do that is for a memory championship. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of like, um, I'm not like, um, um, that That took a hell of a lot of work, and it was very unwieldy. Yeah. You know, I'd be like, 883, oh, who's 883 again? Whereas with a two-digit number, it's 10 times easier, and you kind of, you never have to pause. So I can't even imagine, how long does it take someone to read out a thousand-digit number? What, what I'm imagining now is at a championship, I mean, well, you'd be able to tell me in a second, but I, I imagine you guys at a championship, you're all sitting down, the... The, the pressure is on, somebody reads out a thousand-digit number, and you're all trying to remember that thousand. Do you have a certain amount of time to remember it, or is it who? Yeah, so the, the discipline where that happens is called the one-hour numbers, and so you get given a number of arbitrary length, you know, 3,000 digits thing, and you've got to remember as many, much of it as you can. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I got to the point where I could remember... Um, I used to try and get 2,000. I used to remember 2,000, but there'll be a few mistakes, and I get, like, a score of 1,600. Because it's a quite brutal scoring system. If you make, um, if you you know, the, the way, the way the, they're lined up is that there's 40 numbers per line, and you get 25 lines per page, so that's 1,000 digits. Um, but if you make, a, if, you get, if you mix up, if you make one-digit mistake, you get half points, and if you make two-digit mistakes, you get zero points. And so you could correctly remember 38 digits on a line and get the next two digits wrong, and you get zero points. And so that's how you can try and remember 2,000 digits, remember 99.9% of them, and still only get a score of 1,500. So it really does optimize for kind of precision memorization. Um, Yeah, and so... um, um, yeah, these tournaments are very. I mean, I haven't competed in any of them for a decade, but like, they're wonderful spaces, and they're really kind of. I got a lot of respect for the communities who, um, who, um, who, um, yeah, who, um, who share in this open objective setting and are willing to put themselves on the line to test and advance the cause of learning. Yeah, it's. That's crazy. Okay, so I've I've got twelve words written down, which I've just pulled out uh-huh. at, at random from a uh, an internet page from your uh-huh. Wikipedia page. How how do we do this then? Do do I just read them out? I, well, I mean, we could actually do a little memory challenge. You could just read them to me like one per second or one per second and a yeah. half, and I can I'll have a go at memorizing them. Um, of course, I might make a mistake, but then I can talk about what the technique is that I do under the hood. Perfect. Thank you. I didn't invite you on the show to become a performing monkey, so please, um, you know, tell me if uh, I'm overstepping any mark. But no, it's right. it's a, it's a, it's a nice little example. So yeah, why don't you read the list to me, and your listeners can try and do the same thing, and then we can talk about how how you remember. Okay, here we go. After degree, science, image, memory, coach. Platform, blog, palace, week, sofa, chairs. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I was, you could probably see me on the video there looking around my apartment. So what I was doing there was I was um, forming an image for each word and arranging them in a sequence around the room. And so the uh, words were like after, um, degree, science, image, memory, coach, platform. I think you said glug, but I, I wasn't quite, quite sure you said that. Um, Palace, week, sofa, chairs. 
Um, yeah, you, you can see me nodding and smiling. Uh, the word I said was blog. Uh, sorry for misprint. Well, not bit- oh blog, yeah. <laughs> oh, right, blog. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and um, and so yeah, and so what what I did, that was great, wasn't it? Yeah. And so what I did was I was like, okay, I'm going to begin in my kitchen. And the word after is actually a very difficult word to remember because it doesn't produce any images. So I just went for rafter instead. So I imagined a big piece of wood on my cooker. And the next word was degree, which is also, by the way, a difficult word to remember because it's a bit abstract. So I imagined a thermometer on my kitchen table. Third word was science, not necessarily an easy word to remember because, again, it's abstract. But I imagined some test tubes on a kind of kitchen counter. Next word was image. And like, image, again, is, is not necessarily super easy to remember. So I, um, I, I just had a picture of the, on the wall, and I just, like, put image onto that. Um, next word was memory. Again, an abstract word, so not necessarily easy to remember. So I, I'm always turning it into an image. So I turn that into a big brain. And I've actually got a brain, a little plastic brain in my apartment. So I just imagine a big version of that on the thing. Next thing was coach. And I began, I was like, okay, because early in this conversation, I was the coach to Joshua Fur. So I kind of imagined myself. And then as I know that's shit, I might remember, misremember what I, what kind of coach, what aspect of me we're talking about. So I had me so sitting on top of a coach, like going to a sports game or something. Next word was platform. Again, slightly abstract term. So what I imagine was someone with enormous platform shoes. Next one was, well, gl- I thought it was glug. It turns out to be a blog, but I thought it was glug. So I imagined someone going glug, 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 glug uh, by my fireplace. On top of the bookshelf, I imagined a palace. The next word after that was weak. I, and so weak is abstract, difficult to remember. So I, formed an image of a calendar and so i blotted out a week in blue and then it was like sofa chairs which are easy to remember because they're easy to imagine and so i actually just put the sofa on the sofa and then imagined some chairs behind it so um, (laughs) that was that was how i how i did that Um, and you just repeated them all perfectly again uh, so that that is this is the memory palace thing that you're doing um, is that right this is a memory palace and this is yeah so it's two things it's like it's a memory i mean in in gross it's like the memory palace, but it's specifically, it's like, on the one hand, t- translating what you want to learn into vivid images, and secondly, arranging them around a space. And what's fun about it is I can go backwards through that list and it can be like chairs, sofa, week, palace, g- g- blog or glug, platform, coach, memory, image, science, degree, after, yes. um, by just going through the same thing in the opposite direction. That is crazy to see. So, okay, now... If anybody listening to this, well, those people that are listening to this that have a, a Bitcoin hardware wallet and have either 12 or 24 words associated with that wallet that they want to commit to memory, this is how they would do it. They would form a memory palace, whether that's somewhere that they're very, very comfortable yeah, in. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, a memory palace, you can use basically any space. You can even use an imaginary space, but for your Bitcoin wallet, this is important. So let's make it somewhere familiar and make it your home. And then just pick a path around your home, like maybe begin on your bed or your bedroom or something like that. And then go, let's say you're in like a little two level house or whatever. Um, it doesn't really matter, but like, you know, you go around your bedroom, dip into the bathroom along the corridor, down the stairs, living room, kitchen, garden or whatever. Um, and you know, you've got more than enough space for a hundred objects in your average thing. So, you know, you can do arbitrarily long but it's you know you can um and you know you could literally have done you know it takes maximum 10 minutes for a beginner who's got no confidence and who thinks they're shit excuse my french (laughs) um to um to get a memory palace with 24 words stored in it which you're never going to forget and by the way the only thing i'd say with her is like you're never going to forget because you're often going to review it in your mind you're often going to be like okay you know, once a week or whatever, you could be like, okay, what is my Bitcoin wallet code? And just just build that habit because it's by repetition that you keep things in long-term memory. But it's nothing to worry about because it, it takes like five, ten seconds to go through, you know. So I'm going to remember this list of 12 objects you just gave me. And I've got a normal memory, by the way, but like, but trained, right? I'm going to remember it till tomorrow. But tomorrow might be getting very vague. Tomorrow I'll repeat it. I'll then I'll remember it for a week. In a week's time, I'll repeat it and I'll know it forever, basically, kind of thing. So, um except that I'm not going to do that because I don't want to remember those words forever. So I'm not going to think about it again. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's the thing, right? You don't have to remember these words so they can just be filed away and filtered and gone. And, you know, they, they might come back one day when you're not expecting it. But so I taught myself my own 24 words uh, using this after reading the book and after reading your passage in the book, 
uh, about how you you taught Joshua. And I can tell you it works. I mean, and you've just proved it's worked. Like it works for you in 10 seconds because like you said, you've got a trained memory. But I think people are still probably kind of confused by the fact that you either got a good memory or you haven't, but what you're saying is you can train it. It's just a matter of applicating, uh, applying a few skills. And this is one of those skills, the memory palace, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And, you know, skills are almost a big word for it. I mean, like, you don't have to practice. <laughs> you can literally just do it off the bat. Um, and so, um, and in front of this, actually, I mean, just on a slightly different topic. When I was, um, after I was in hospital that time, I uh, I kind of missed my first year at uni. I had a gap year. And um, and I went traveling. And I, I, I really wanted to, you know, I'm very bad with objects. I'm always like, you know, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm a kind of, um, I have a deep need for freedom at some level. And um, anyway, I tried to refine my traveling so that I could exist with the smallest possible number of objects. And I kind of got it down to a thing where, where I discovered that like a linen suit was the ultimate piece of travel gear because you can, um, it's light but it's also kind of warm because you've got trousers, a jacket. You can go into any social situation. You go to a restaurant, you go into a youth hostel, you go to a diplomatic drinks reception, etc. Um, and um, and it's got enough pockets that you can kind of keep all your possessions in it. And it really frustrated me that I needed to have, you know, I'd have like a packet of nuts and like a couple of spare pairs of socks in the two different pockets. And that was kind of enough. But there were some other objects I needed, like a passport and a credit card, which is super annoying because you can lose them, etc. And I wanted to condense this further. And it really bothered me that you couldn't go to bank machines and like type in a hundred digit number or whatever. Da -da -da -da. But now that exists, you can like, you can have all your codes in your mind. Um, I guess you have two-factor auth. You kind of need a phone. But, like, you can just walk into some random internet cafe and you can access your money. You can access your thing. And we're kind of in this place. And then with Bitcoin, the, the, like, 10, 10x that, you can have, you know, you can have – and I'm sure your listeners are, like, uh, you know, <clears throat> multi-millionaire Bitcoin um, <laughs> speculators. You can have all of that wealth captured in um, – in your memory and that's quite cool in these 12 or 24 words right okay let's let's go down the bitcoin rabbit hole because we, we spoke about it briefly just before we started recording and uh you, you you told me how did you okay how did you one how did you first hear about it i have spent over the like because running a startup i run a, a language learning company called memorize um and um we had um early on like 2011 um investors in San Francisco and this kind of thing. So I spent a lot of time in San Francisco and an old university friend of mine who became a kind of string theorist at Stanford used to live on this utopian commune boat. It's just the coolest place I ever went. It's called the Maritol. It was on Pier 50. It was sort of somewhat legal. And uh, <laughs> the people who hung out there were just the coolest people I'd ever met. And, you know, I was at this house party in about 20... 12, 2013, and there were these guys discussing Bitcoin. And, it, and it, ever since that moment, I've had just incredible respect for San Francisco as an intellectual milieu because they were, you know, even even now in, in England, in London, even in the tech scene, people are like, yeah, not sure about crypto, you know, blah. Um, yeah, well, that was, that was a thing with you know, blah. They're just not interesting to talk to about it. And here they were, they were like, and I, I was in the early part of this conversation. They were talking about uh, the underlying cryptography, um, the, the the mathematics of the original paper, da, 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 da. and then they got onto mining protocols. And they were do, they were talking about mining protocols for a while. And then and that was when I left. But it turned out they were heating the boat that winter by mining Bitcoin. Oh wow! They're like, if we're going to spend money on electricity, we may as well just heat the boat um, and mine Bitcoin. And so some of them, I think, became pretty wealthy from that. And but then they were talking about alternative versions of it, and it, I even actually started a um, as a joke with one of them uh, um, a um, a thing called Kitcoin, um, which was like uh, Bitcoin for cats. Uh, long story. Um, anyway, so back then, and then it was funny. We memorized. We did a Series A, four million dollar investment, and 
we seriously considered putting a million dollars into Bitcoin. This is when Bitcoin was like $50. Oh, so. we, no. we seriously considered putting a million dollars into Bitcoin. And then we were like, no, that's basically probably illegal. And our, um, but we were like, it's just sitting in the bank. Bitcoin's going to be huge. Um, and so me and my co-founder, Ben, we bought ourselves out of our own pocket one Bitcoin each. Um, uh, and I think this way Bitcoin... But when we did that, yeah, it was kind of a hundred dollars or something, and um, and I, anyway, I've owned one Bitcoin ever since. But um, but yeah, it's um, you know, for for me, it's um, semi interesting as a global reserve currency. But I, I basically have zero interest in economics. I'm much more intuitively, um, and I, that generally sounds like a really good idea, and. Um, and my one observation about it, though, though, is that like it's very badly named as crypto because it's like the least crypto thing. It's the least hidden thing ever. It's like all transactions by everybody ever are known to everybody. It's like the least hidden thing, and that maybe is a bit problematic. I don't know, but anyway. But I, I, I then like blockchain stuff. I find super interesting, like um, the underlying concept of scarcity in digital goods. Um, and in particular, I suppose like the application I'm most excited by for the next 20 years is, um, institutional structures. You might, my overall belief is that technology has created a lot of good stuff in the kind of digital revolution, but it hasn't actually touched any of the major problems of humanity, which are in my view, mainly to do with organizational design. It's just like, why as a society has it been completely obvious since the early 1990s? I, I first became aware of, for example, that the environment is on a path to obliteration in like the early 90s, whatever. 30 years later, nothing, nothing. You, you, know, you look at the exponential graphs of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, et cetera, you're like, literally nothing's been done. But you ask any individual citizen around the world, and sure, you've got some sort of whatever right-wing psychopaths who are like, no, we'd rather like uh, destroy the world. But but basically everyone agrees it would be much, much better if we didn't have, you know, and the technology's there, the technology would have developed 10 times faster. And it's just like, as a species, why can't we get our stuff together? Um, that is an organizational and a governance problem in my view. Um, another example, education. Yeah, we've got all these cool digital tools. But how good is education compared to how it was in the 1950s? Well, probably not any better at all. Um, urban space. You know, it's been completely obvious to anybody who's studied the matter what makes a cool city. And, it, you know, the answer, by the way, is not cars. You don't want to have cars in cities because they take up all the space and make it noisy and polluted. And the opportunities for people to be sitting at cafes and playing sports and bumping into each other and making creative use of urban space are much reduced. You know, I don't think these are kind of controversial views. And they're obvious things to solve, but humanity can't get its uh, act together. And um, I think the blockchain can play a role in creating forms of institutional design, power, governance, control, which can um, can actually effectively implement an actually functional democracy. Um, and um, it seems as though blockchain is likely to be a kind of a fundamental tool for, for putting that off. We are all hoping for the same thing. We are all hoping for a much better, brighter, more efficient and uh, optimistic future. And, you know, many of yeah. us in the Bitcoin space see that with with the technology that's coming and the, the, the change that has to happen. Like, you know, it's a complete mm -hmm. necessity. So how close we are to it, we don't know, but fingers crossed. Man, I cannot believe you guys were thinking about putting a million bucks into Bitcoin as part of your seed money because I asked Stephen Cole this exact question, and he's a, uh, he's a VC in San Francisco who funds uh, Bitcoin startups. And my question to him was, if you, you know, these guys are going for around, uh, you know, seed A, how much, you know, what percentage weighted should go into Bitcoin to lengthen the runway? Yeah. So, but you guys yeah. were already thinking about that in 2013. That's amazing. I went on a Bitcoin startup. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, that, it would have been a fantastic board meeting. It's like, okay, guys, um, <laughs> do you want to hear the good news or the bad news? Um, it's like, well, the bad news is um, we, um, we're not profitable and we haven't hit our growth metrics. Um, and we've got another piece of bad news. It's like um, we have been um, extraordinarily financially irresponsible and uh, put the funding around into speculative assets. Okay, thanks. Uh, you're fired. Uh, what's the good news? It's like um, we have <laughs> tried to do the calculation. So it went basically from fifth. Let's go to hundred dollars to ten thousand um, dollars. That's how. Yeah, we'd have had a hundred million dollars in the bank account. Um, um, and um, instead, you know, in the in the crazy story of startups, you know, a million dollars, you can lose six months to like a minor boring product decision of wrong hire, you know, like, um, um, and so, um, but anyway, that was, uh, that would have been funny, but, um, probably in the grand scheme of things, it was correct not to put company money into a speculative asset. Well, to, to let you know, you might already be aware, but companies have started doing that now. It's certainly in the private sector, it's been going on for longer than we ever imagined. And just last mm. month, uh, MicroStrategy announced that they had, uh, well, they had $500 million on the, on the balance sheet sitting there burning a great big hole in itself. And they moved $425 million into Bitcoin uh, in September. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. And what's the company? MicroStrategy. And the wow. CEO's name is Michael Saylor. And you'll be able to find, he's been on many of the Bitcoin podcasts. Hopefully he shall be coming mm -hmm. on in the next uh, month or so to, uh, to discuss that move. Great. But uh -huh. that will be now the first of many because this will now open. I mean, every boardroom now has to be talking about this. So this is crazy. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's rare the company which has um, significant money on their balance sheet, right? Um, yes. So... The, you know, any, any venture-backed company is like, um, you know, you have these phases immediately following a funding round where you've got a load of money on the balance sheet, but, you know, you're investing that money in growth, you're investing that money in the team, in the product, et cetera, in marketing channels. And so, uh, and, and the real value of creating is your own company, right? Um, otherwise, the investor would have just invested in Bitcoin directly, you know, so, so um, but, you know, there are companies, you know, um, the kind of, the tech titans, you know, mm -hmm. um, Apple and Facebook and Google, you know, I think um, Apple at one point had about $200 billion, didn't they, in uh, unrepatriated cash. Google normally sits on $50 billion. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I just mean, one, they probably have to ask those Just 1% of that, right? That's, uh, that's really, um, anyway, that's what the, uh, the community, the Bitcoin community are very uh, excited about at the moment. Let's talk about Memorize because I use it. It's a great, uh, great product. What is Memrise for those people that are listening uh, and might not have come across it or don't know what it is yet? Yeah, so Memrise is a language learning app, kind of iOS, Android, and, uh, and web. And um, it basically puts into um, an interactive language learning game or world uh, everything I know about learning. And so it's got um, you know all of the memory techniques of space repetition, testing, vivid imagery, it makes big use of short videos of native speakers in context, which are memorable, which teach you the accent. Um, it, uh, you know, we talk about helping people learn stuff, like memorize stuff, immerse in it, experience that language as it's spoken in the real world, and then begin communicating in it um, and actually getting into practice in, in that language. And the kind of the long-term vision is very much that it's a, it's a world, right? It's a place where you go speak a language, you can interact with people, you can immerse in language content, um, and you know. Um, yeah, we've had about 50 million downloads. Um, we're a team of uh, 80 based in London. Um, yeah, we won a Google Play's App of the Year in 2017. Um, and yeah, I think we've, you know, if, I, I don't want to be too um, boastful because we actually have more, we have competitors who are better known. But um, yeah, I think we've, um, we've done the vast majority of the innovation in the language learning space over the last, um, over the last 10 years. It was our 10 year anniversary actually on Thursday. We had a big online party. It was quite cool. Uh, with users from around the world, by the way, it was so cool. We had like users from Kazakhstan and Madagascar and Brazil and Saudi Arabia and Japan and all these people were just like coming to hang out. It was amazing. Um, but yeah, it's, um, check it out. You can download it on the app store. It's kind of freemium. So you can get quite a lot for free. And then there's a subscription tier if you fancy it. And you know, <clears throat> 
you know, we, we, We've articulated over the years our, our vision in different ways, but one way which, which I'm <clears throat> very passionate about is like, you know, help everyone discover the genius of their mind. I really do believe that, like, just by dint of the obvious fact that everybody speaks their own first language fluently, this ability lies in everybody. I taught multiple people to become super high level in memory. I, I, I've seen people interact with the app. You know, anybody can basically become a learning genius, and it doesn't require that much more than like using the app. And um, a bit of enthusiasm, and you're kind of there. Yes, I mean, ten years. At what point do you stop becoming a startup? Um, it's a question which I have been posed, <laughs> like by my sisters. I got four quite funny sisters, and then I add, "You've been doing it for ten years. I don't think you can keep calling it a startup." And I was like, "No, no, it's a startup. Why is it a startup?" Uh, and then you think of various sort of definitional things for startup. Oh, it's a startup because it's it's on a growth trajectory. You know, like it's. Uh, you know, we got uh, 50 million users going to get to 500 million. Um, and it's a startup because that's the mentality. It's a startup because that's what you call these things. But, yeah, um, you know, there's also a benefit, though, to say, actually, you know, it's a business. You know, we've got a business. We um, we make money. We pay our own bills. We're kind of um, – we've got uh, a, a community of stakeholders among, among our learners, among our investors, and so on. Um, but basically, I think once we go public is probably when um, – when I will get into the habit of saying, okay, we're a business now. Will you, is that on the cards, do you think? I reckon, I mean, you know, these things are very unpredictable, but I, you know, the aim would be in three years' time, something like that, get the company in a position where it could go public if it wanted to. Yeah. So if there's anybody listening here that wants to give Memorize a go and really enjoy it and then want to start paying the premium, is there going to be an option for these guys to start paying in Satoshi's? Oh, great question. Um, well, I, I believe that on um, – that's a great question. And the answer, I, frankly, is no, although you can pay via Stripe. And I believe on Stripe you can play with Bitcoin. So that's how I would edge that one in. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's – Well, this uh, could be a nice way for you guys to start. Why are we not doing that? Yeah. That's, I'm going to get onto my product managers. Go, guys, what the hell? What the hell? Um, you, oh, you need BTC Pay Server. They'll be able to help you out. and You can start accepting Bitcoin. And this will be a nice way to start getting Bitcoin into your treasury. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. Um, and that allows us to sort of speculate on Bitcoin without, like, redirecting investor funds. Yeah, it's great. And that's an easy one to get past the board, right? You don't need to say, um, we're going to go into this speculative, speculative asset. What we need to do yeah. to grow our user base is to start accepting a currency such as Bitcoin. Great. I there you it. go. There's the pitch. Uh, Daniel, <laughs> if, if nothing else, I will take that as my action item yes. following this uh, very enjoyable chat. Um, it's been so great to have you on and really appreciate you teaching us uh, how to remember these words in such an easy manner and giving everybody the inspiration to go out and start uh, you know, paying more attention to the, the skill set that they probably have been paying um, no attention to. So very, very uh, big thank you, mate. Thank you for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you ever so much. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for um, for coming on the show, Ed. I hope you get to listen to uh, back to this one. And um, yeah, it was a great, enjoyable show. Really, really opened. I hope many people's ears and eyes to the fact that they they can commit these words to memory. It's not about having a bad memory and, and falling into that trap of believing you have a bad memory. It's this basic technique the memory palace you know wherever you grew up in your in your home as a kid or whatever the, the, the house that you're living in now there's 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 somewhere that you are intimately knowledgeable about and remember a great deal and can start just placing those words in specific places as you walk around your house it's a brilliant technique. I've used it. It works. I recommend it highly, wholeheartedly. So go do it. Go go dig your words out. Go learn them. Go commit them to memory. So you have a brain wallet. You have a paper wallet. And you might even have the cold card steel plate somewhere. You might have a multi-sig setup. Let's, let's start getting serious about this stuff. 
and you can remember the words and then you're done. It's it's amazing. So I hope that was of some value to you guys and please reach out to Ed on Twitter and interact. I'm sure he'd love to hear from the Bitcoin community. He's one of us, one of us. What a brilliant story. I love those stories about the early days of Bitcoin and the potential of trying, even considering back in 2013 of putting some of their startup seed money into Bitcoin. Wow. <laughs> what a great story and heating the boat as well with mining rigs. There's so many golden stories out there just waiting to be unearthed and meeting someone like Ed who's built such a great company like Memorize. Go and check it out. It's free to download on the App Store. Go and have a mess around with it. It's it's great. And let's hope that they start accepting Bitcoin. How cool would that be? That, uh, that would make me so happy that if there was an announcement in a few months' time of Memorize now accepting sats as payment via BTC pay server or somebody else that would be so amazing to have been uh, a part of of that little seed or suggestion so Ed thanks again for coming on the show really appreciate it guys you know what to do go start stacking some sats go head over to coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten or swanbitcoin.com forward slash one bitcoin uh forward slash once bitten or go and check out at friar Hass on twitter to get his list of all of the bitcoin only companies that are helping you stack sats and uh that's it until the next show guys really appreciate anything that you're doing to, to push this forward all of the shares comments and likes goes a long way very humbling appreciate it speak to you on the next show thank you